We're seven months into the current fiscal year, and Congress finally has a deal to wrap up spending for it. However, Democrats did a little bit of uh, victory dancing uh, in, as soon as the deal was announced. Republicans didn't really take well to that, and that has led to the current sort of sore, era of sore feelings that we're seeing in Congress this week. Joining me on the Big Story podcast, Walter Shapiro, one of Roll Call's columnists, and Niels Lesniewski, our senior leadership reporter. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be with you. So let's walk through just a little bit of this. Sunday night, everybody's getting ready to uh, take the slippers off, extinguish the fire, and, uh, and, and head off to the Sandman, welcome the Sandman into uh, dreamy sleep. And about 11 o'clock, we find out there's a deal on the omnibus spending bill, which will wrap up trillions of dollars in spending for the current fiscal year, which is, as, as I mentioned, we're seven months into. And uh, the next day on Monday, we saw Democrats, you know, sort of crowing that they had won a lot of their priorities. And that sort of lasted throughout Monday. And on Tuesday, the Republicans sort of responded. And and what 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 happened? It seemed like we had a there was a, a small victory in Washington. And now now what do we have, Niels? Well, the the victory lap that uh, was taken most obviously by Chuck Schumer and Patrick Leahy, the uh, top Democrat in the Senate and the top Democrat on the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, uh, gathering reporters around the fireplace, literally. And Second reference to a fireplace here on the Big Story podcast. That's right. <laughs> and as a result, they, they sort of gathered the reporters together to tell us uh, all of the victories that they had. At one point, I asked Chuck Schumer, okay, so you've spent about 20 to 25 minutes talking about victories. Is there anything on which you lost? And his answer was, not really. Uh, so then the next day, uh, after the first of what I think has thus far been three OMB director Mick Mulvaney media availabilities. The budget director for President Donald Trump and a former uh, conservative member from South Carolina, Mick Mulvaney. He uh, has now done at least three different media availabilities to talk about Republican victories. Uh, Speaker Paul Ryan has been out talking about uh, Republican victories, and there were some, uh, but I think it's it's fair to say that the dynamics of this debate always sort of favored the Democrats. And so while there were places where the Republicans won, uh, the Democrats were inevitably going to do well. And Walter, uh, you know, it, in the course of this, it seems like the Republicans were quite reactive. Is this sort of what we've come to expect from the Trump White House? Well, first of all, whatever we expect from the Trump White House can probably be obviated by events next week, since the only constant here is a level of both contempt for the norms of Washington and incompetence that I have not seen in covering politics in Washington since, God forbid, the days of the Nixon administration. Uh, but the larger point here is that there is no way the Republicans could win with the government shutdown. Even the most obtuse voters would find it hard to blame the party that has a minority of the votes in both the Senate and the House for being unable to pass a budget. That is the responsibility of the majority party. It is particularly the responsibility of the majority party when they control the White House. And it is the total dysfunction of the House Republicans in particular 
and enough moderates who are not marching in lockstep with the Trump White House and the Senate that the Republicans needed Democratic votes to pass a budget. And once your votes are needed, you have an awful lot of leverage because only in Donald Trump's fever dreams would you be blamed for shutting down the government. And, and Niels, we, we did see a little bit of this as this dynamic that Walter's talking about is taking hold where Republicans are, are sort of striking back, but they also they, they know that they would be blamed in the in the event of a of, of, a, of a shutdown. And the, the Democrats seem to pull back a little bit. They seem to moderate like they're they're crowing, if you will. Uh, yesterday, Chuck Schumer went to the mics and talked about how, you know, this is a big win for minors pensions and, uh, or mi- minors health care, uh, rather, and, and, said, and congratulated Mitch McConnell saying, uh, you know, we, we just work together so well. Uh, but you're right. The, the Democrats do seem to have a little bit more leverage here. Uh, and, and part of the reason is, is that not all Republicans are on board with this, correct? That's right. And, and Walter mentioned this a little bit. It's particularly true because in the House, you do not expect to be able to pass basically any sort of a spending bill with all Republican votes. In fact, and now while there were some absences which brought down this vote total, on the one-week continuing resolution, there were not 216 or 217 Republicans who voted for the bill that is keeping the government's lights on this week. Uh, a one-week straightforward extension. There weren't. An, there it was an overwhelmingly passed uh, measure with a lot of Democrats in the House. Uh, but that so that's sort of the dynamic that you know that the situation in the House is going to give Nancy Pelosi uh, power that she wouldn't have if you could just pass a bill with all Republican votes. Everybody knows that's not going to happen, and so that's partly why this dynamic always plays out this way. Walter, you mentioned that you know you've you've been observing Washington uh, from from near and afar uh, since the days of the Nixon administration. We saw this extraordinary moment yesterday in the the third of of Mick Mulvaney's three briefings. Uh, my three briefings. I, I can see yes, a sitcom yes, right yes, now. It, it was a top rated sitcom <laughs> starring in the 90s. Fred McMurray. Yes. You know? <laughs> uh, that uh, he came. You know, he said, "We are competent." And I think the message that we're sending is that we are competent. We know what we're doing, and the country is safe in our hands. This brought to mind immediately, I mean, as, as the, the political science major in me and also the, the literature uh, uh, person in me just thought of some of the parallels that we've seen. We've seen Alexander Haig after Reagan was shot saying, I'm in control here. Do not, re- <laughs> do not forget Richard Nixon saying, I'm not a crook. Right. If you have to say it, I mean, what, what does that say if, if, you, if you feel compelled to have to say that? I mean, Bill Clinton after Newt Gingrich took over the House in 1994, was compelled to say, I'm still relevant. (laughs) Are these people just not getting coaching on on when not to say something? Are we just in a media environment where people feel that they have to react and they have to say almost too much? Well, part of it is uh, um, our current president of the United States is not exactly setting new standards for restraint in public utterances. So I think um, Nick Mulvaney, who only spent three terms in the House, by the way, so we're not talking about one of these legendary powerhouse figures um, of Capitol Hill, um, is peddling as fast as he can to keep up with his boss. And uh, I'm sure that people are... 
whether it's Trump or whether it's Sean Spicer, go out there again and do another briefing. That one didn't work. And the point is, this is a White House that continues to believe that if you claim that these are the largest inaugural crowds um, since um, George Washington, people will believe it. And ultimately, what they have done is they have so squandered their credibility that the only people who believe even a comment by the White House on the color of the sky are the 40 percent of the electorate, which are unreservedly for Donald Trump. And, Niels, what what sort of challenges does this present to people, say, I mean, in the Senate, we always think of that the, this is, you know, again, this is the saucer that cools the hot tea, right? That, uh, you know, there, there are a, a great deal of, of senators who feel like it is their obligation to sort of smooth out the rough edges. What are senators telling you? What are, what are, what's the tone that you're looking at, you're seeing, feeling? When the president of the United States tweeted that uh, he thinks that either there need to be 60 Republican senators elected or they need to change the rules so that so that these these filibusters can't happen and you can't block legislation uh, if it can't get 60 votes. Uh, that went didn't over, go over well. No, it went over like a lead <laughs> balloon. Um, even among Republicans. Even among Republicans. I was talking to Senator Jeff Flake from from your great state of Arizona, and he literally said, I knew he was going to do it at some point. He was just waiting. And, and Flake, who served for years in the House, said, well... House members always say this. We figured at some point that President Trump would say the same thing, but it's not going to happen. There's no support for it. Go ahead, Walter. I I mean, uh, when Neil mentioned Jeff Flake, I think it's really important to understand the dynamics politically in the Senate. There are exactly two, two in a body of 152 Republicans, there are two senators who have any reason to worry at all about re-election in 2018, and that is Jeff Flake and, uh, and Dean Heller, Heller of Nevada. What that means is that the other senator, Republican senators, the other uh, 40-something Republican senators who are not on the ballot in 2018, either have to worry about being on a ticket with Donald Trump taking on all that Donald Trump represents in 2020, or else if Donald Trump is reelected in 2022 for the class of 16, they are going to be dealing with the very difficult political environment of uh, running for re-election in the sixth year of an eight-year presidential term. So what this means, in essence, is that there is a vested interest on the part of Senate Republicans to play a long game and think about how their reputations and their voting records will look in 2020 and 2022. So it is in that sense that they are very different than House Republicans who are worried about a wave election in 2018 that could destroy their majority. There is almost no way the Republicans will lose the Senate majority in 2018. But as a result... There are very few Senate Republicans, Flake and Heller, who are spending much time worrying about their short-term future in the United States Senate. And even even Heller and, and Flake, as Walter says, Niels, I mean, they, they their their worries are probably more on, on their right flank. So they have a little bit of balancing to do, too. I mean, they, they have to worry about a primary. And it's also yeah. the fact that Hillary Clinton took Nevada 
and um, Hillary Clinton came reasonably close in Arizona. So these are not gimme states, even though both Heller and Flake would be favored. Another thing is that Flake has been very careful to, while he was a never-Trump Republican, he has been very careful not to antagonize the right wing, not to have groups like the Club for Growth against him. You, you mentioned, you know, Flake's time in, in the House, not not to make this the Jeff Flake hour, but, I mean, Jeff Flake was was one of these, you know, sort of firebrands. I mean, he wanted to vote down every appropriations bill. I mean, he, he wanted to sort of take on the, the, the power elite and so forth. People who are longtime members of the Appropriations Committee who yearn for the days of earmarks, earmarks and, and <laughs> earmarks and more earmarks, and earmarks and everything you can come up with uh, there. And we know where he is on that. And yet the important thing this week is not shutting the government down. And this gets back to this whole question with with President Trump saying maybe we need a good shutdown in in September. Another part of or, yes, the which tweet. Is actually yeah. in October, as some may point out. I'm not sure if it pretends well for this budgeting process and this appropriating process for the next fiscal year, because as soon as we get past the omnibus being signed into law, the appropriations committees are going to have what look like routine hearings on agency accounts, the foreign aid. Lindsey Graham will have a hearing on the foreign aid budget and all that will happen. And yet... How will any of that go? Because the budget blueprint from uh, Mulvaney is so far outside the realm of what this omnibus is that that I bet you there's going to be fireworks in, in even the most routine matters as we get towards September. And Walter, we're also talking about a, a Republican agenda, you know, from the White House down that's talking about reworking 20 percent of the economy with, with the health care system uh, that, they, you know, the House House Republicans keep on thinking they're they're close to a deal, that they, they want to get a deal and rewriting the tax code for the world's largest economy. How realistic is this? Given the f- fact that I do not believe in late October of 2016 that the current occupant of the White House had a ch- um, even a remote chance of being elected, I'm not going to say never, but what I am going to say is almost never, that what you're dealing with here is a situation where Republican divisions are almost certainly too deep to ever pass a health care bill without Democratic votes or without some sort of Democratic buy-in, which creates a totally different health care bill. And there's no talk of that. And the Republicans might be united on tax cuts. But once you start talking about tax reform and and paying for the tax cuts, you suddenly have a situation where there are losers as well as winners. And in any legislative situation where there are losers, the losers tend to be rather loud in fighting against losing. All of these efforts, like the Paul Ryan cherished border adjustment tax, they're talking about eliminating um, the deduction for state and local uh, taxes. Given the fact that Republicans have a 22-vote majority in the House— and going from memory, there are about 12 or 13 Republicans from California and New York, the two biggest losers in terms of eliminating the state and local tax deduction, plus a few more from New Jersey 
And suddenly, even without worrying about the Freedom Caucus or anything else, you have jeopardized your House majority on just one simple thing. The, if I can jump in, the yeah. front page of the Star-Ledger, which I happen to see, the newspaper of record in, 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 in Newark, New yeah. the front page of the Star-Ledger the morning after the uh, tax proposal was rolled out by the White House was it like a full page story about the state and local sales tax. How much your taxes will go up. (laughs) Well, go ahead. So I'm about to write a column for Roll Call about the fact that nothing in Donald Trump's experience in New York prepared him for legislating. Neither the dominate the New York tabloids, neither the advice from his mentor, Joe McCarthy's henchman, Roy Cohn. None of this has prepared him for legislating. And as a consequence, almost everything the White House has done, such as create these false deadlines for a health care bill, has made it harder for Republicans on Capitol Hill rather than easier. And they certainly have not in any way intimidated the Democrats. One last question. I mean, we've talked a lot. I mean, you, you mentioned the way that Trump has nothing prepared him for this. Uh, in, in, I mean, he's always been very antagonistic. He's he's always been very like hard charging. He is sort of Roy Cohn's uh, child in, 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 in the way that he deals with the media and his opponents. Is there do you think that we will actually see any real outreach to Democrats on these really sticky issues like taxes and health care? Because as you mentioned, Walter, as you mentioned, Niels, like the, the, it, these are topics that, I mean, if you could get a few Democrats on the side here, you wouldn't need to placate just the Freedom Caucus or need to placate just this group of moderates in New Jersey. One of the things is it's very easy to deride Nancy Pelosi as a polarizing figure of the Democratic Party. Oh, can't they get somebody younger and more dynamic as the Democratic leader in the House? The ability of Nancy Pelosi to hold together an entire Democratic caucus and not give the Republicans one vote should not be minimized as an accomplishment. But the larger, and Chuck Schumer as well in the Senate, but the larger point is maybe it would have been possible to get Democratic buy-ins on other things, but for the two things that Trump started his administration on. No Democrat failed to be appalled by the initial immigration orders and the harshness with which they were administered. The degree to which that poisoned the well should not be underestimated, nor should the idea of a president of the United States in a tweet calling his predecessor sick and bad and claiming without any evidence that he was wiretapped by his predecessor. This is not a proven strategy um, for building goodwill with the Democrats. Niels, any Democrats you think that might be ripe for for partnering with Mr. Trump on things? Oh, I could totally see a universe in which there's a new national infrastructure plan uh, and 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 half of West Virginia is renamed after Joe Manchin that was previously <laughs> named for Robert C. Byrd. But short of that, and, and Manchin does talk with President Trump fairly regularly, in part because of hailing from West Virginia that's so heavily supported uh, Trump in, in 2016. But other than that, an infrastructure being maybe the exception to the rule, but even that, you would then have to divorce it from 
this conservative tax vision. Uh, if you marry taxes and infrastructure spending, you could probably get 60 votes in the Senate, but not with the uh, outline of uh, tax reform that the, that the White House has been, has been pushing. All right. That's going to do it for us on the Big Story Podcast. Thank you, Walter. Thank you, Niels. I'm Jason Dick. This has been the Big Story Podcast. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. Thanks for listening.